0: In Freshman Psychology 101, we took on as a part of this introduction to the study of the mind, a study of dreams. Now I had some apprehension going in because this was going to require one to wake and then journal beside their bed what sort of dreams they had had the night before. I'm one who has always had fitful and anxious sleep. And I had to go and tell my instructor that I'm not one to remember my dreams because oftentimes I feel fortunate if I've had any dreams at all. One of my classmates had an interesting encounter. He had a a penchant for whimsy and so decided that he was going to leave for himself his journal and a crayon to write in his journal, because why not? He woke up the next day to realize that uh, he had had indeed a very eventful night of dreaming, and uh, when he looked to see what he had recorded in his journal, he was surprised, because his journal was empty, but half the crayon was missing with teeth marks around it. I don't know if you dream, I don't know how well you sleep, maybe you've tried relaxation, maybe you've tried meditation, maybe you've tried medicines to help you sleep, or perhaps uh, more homeopathic remedies, maybe you just dread that time of the evening when the lights turn off and you lay down in your bed ready to do battle with a long night, maybe, just maybe, the idea of the goal of our prayers being rest is something that sounds just a bit. So here's the thing. <clears throat> what Steve said earlier perhaps rings true for many of us. might require us to change. We hear the promises that our rest, our ultimate rest, is found in Jesus. And we want it to just show up. Psalm 4's position in the Psalter is that of an evening psalm one to be prayed at the conclusion of the day but what does it mean for those of us who have fits and starts more angst than rest what does it mean for us to actually rest as david did I want to invite you to consider that this psalm gives us a window into what that rest looks like, but I also want to forewarn you that it is not simply this magic potion of do this and you will suddenly rest and sleep soundly. I want to warn you that the rest that God gives is not a rest that comes Without sacrifice, and let's trust him for the rest that he alone can give. We're in Psalm four, all eight verses. It's printed in your program. It's also on whatever Bible you have brought with you. Stand if you would, and let's hear God's word. To the choir master, a string instrument, a Psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But no... The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O oh Lord. And the tension and the arguments and the what ifs and the if. Would you still our hearts and quiet our minds? Our desire is to see Jesus and him home. The goal. When we think about this group of Psalms, when we think about bringing our petitions to the Lord, what is the goal? What are we trying to get? Psalm 4 lays it out for us. Our goal is to rest But in order to rest, there's also going to be wrestling. In order to rest, there's going to be wrestling. And that's not something that we're necessarily looking for because we're already exhausted. It seems like so much more work in order to rest if we have to wrestle first. And the question that I ask for you this morning is the same one that I asked to myself. Would you rather continue to subsist with the way things are right now or would you rather pursue the rest that David received and that God ultimately promises to his people? Are you tired of being tired? One of the things that often causes people to to be willing to change is when the pain of changing is less than it's a lot of times why you need people to experience rock bottom you need them to experience things as bad as it could possibly be because then all of a sudden the the thought of changing, the thought of, 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 of doing the hard work, the wrestling work of changing, that pain becomes less than the pain of remaining the way you are. David invites us to hear three pain points of our heart in this psalm. There are three couplets, three groups, three types of people that David is speaking to, but but those people aren't in the room with David. So who's he speaking to? He's speaking to his own heart. He's, He's preaching, he's declaring things to his own heart. David is no less unburdening himself before the Lord. He's, he's unpacking, but he's wrestling, friends. The movement of the clamor of verses 1 and following to the rest that comes in verse 8 is not simply just a drifting peacefully from point A to point B. No, friends, listen. It is David wrestling with his own heart so that he can finally rest in the Lord who loves his heart. So I want us to consider the three kind of pain points of his own heart that he's wrestling with. He takes three types of conversations on, his divided heart, his bitter heart, his ungrateful heart. So let's look at these together this morning. First thing I want you to see is uh, David bringing just this very bold Very bold prayer before the Lord. Listen to how he opens this prayer. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. David is coming with great boldness and expectation. And in this first grouping in verses two and three, we see David describing a state of mind. The state of mind he first talks about is a fickle or a divided heart. Well, look at what he says in verse two. He says, "O men, how long shall my honor be be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies?" So what does David mean when he says seek after lies? This is um this is part of the, the the not glamorous part of preparing sermons when you spend an inordinate amount of time trying to chase down the usage of a particular word. That word lies is interesting if you look at the way it's used in the Old Testament. Because sometimes it means. Um, not speaking the truth. But sometimes that word in the Hebrew is used to describe idolatry. You can see this in Amos chapter 4, verse 2. You can see it over in Isaiah 25 when Isaiah uses shorthand to talk about why is Judah in such distress because they've sought after lies. They've tried to take refuge underneath lies. So it does mean that um, to speak that which is untrue and false to reality, but another thing that it can mean is to trust in anything or anyone besides God because that's a lie too. Listen, listen to how the NIV translates this verse. It says in verse two, how long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek fault?" One way to find ourselves in distress and needing to wrestle is when our hearts are divided when we're longing for satisfaction from something that can't satisfy us. Now, think about when you have um, been in great distress. Think about when you have gone before the Lord. Think about what has been the subject of your prayers. I am not saying that the things that you're praying about are bad. But when those things become your if-only it can lead you to a bad spot. It could be bad things, but it could be good things too. It could be your kids. It could be your desire for kids. It could be your job. It could be your house. It could be your family. It could be your bank account. It could be how people see you or how people appreciate you or whether or not they like you. It could be your grades in school. It could be your performance evaluation that you get from your superiors. It could be that longing that your parents would just see you as someone who's made good choices instead of bad choices. Whatever those, whatever those things are, those things lead to a divided heart. And, and in fact, what can happen is when you're praying those things, when you're, when you're pouring those things out before the Lord, what ends up happening is you end up feeling worse, not better. Have you experienced that before? Where in your prayers, you have, you have poured out your heart before the Lord. You have, your, your bed is soaked. You're, there are tears streaming down your face. And at the end of your prayers, you feel worse and not better, and so you go back again and again and again and again and again and pray and pray and pray, asking God to change your circumstances. Because you've said, unless this thing changes, I simply cannot be at peace. This is what he does. Look at verse 3. He says, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to Him. One commentator, Derek Kidner, says this about God's choice of a man is not for office or honor, but for fellowship with himself, which is the ultimate answer to the most wounding of aspirations and discouragements. Why has God called us and set us apart? God has called us and set us apart for himself so that he would um, be great in our lives, so that we would delight in him. Where does that delight come from? Because he delights in us. Do you see? He delights in us. David says also, the Lord hears when I call to him. I'm going to say something that's going to sound incredibly obvious. But I want you to understand. Your status in front of other people whether it's your economic status or your, uh, the status of your success or the status of your athletic prowess, can't hear you when you call to it, and it can't answer. Your health can't answer back. Your youth, your appearance, can't answer back when you call to it. Your bank account can't hear you when you call to it. Do you know what happens? When you call out to these things, when you say, oh, I'll only be happy if my kids are making good choices and then they make bad choices. Oh, I'll only be happy if we can finally get out of that cycle of living paycheck to paycheck and just holding on. Your bank account can't answer you when, it called, when you call to if. I'll only be happy if I can finally say I've got my life together. None of it. Just like the idols of Babylon, all of those things are deaf and mute and powerless to hear you when you call to them. They demand sacrifices and give you nothing in return. David's preaching to himself, that with fellowship with God, with an audience of the king, all of this is what he really and truly needs. Everything else that he's experiencing, the things that appear around him to be in peril, none of those things are at the core of that which he really needs. See, here's the thing, friends, if that, if that reality is not the thing that's anchoring your soul if that is not what is actually giving you the stability of your heart at your core that because you have the fellowship of the god of the universe because he hears you when you call to him because you have an audience before him if that's not the thing that's anchoring you then friends something else is Something else has become your if only. And if that hope's not anchoring you, you're not going to have peace in your prayers because you're not going to actually get ever the thing that will ever satisfy you. It is what Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. God's not going to give in and enable. He's going to crush the idol love out of his love for you. That's the first thing, right? David is confronting a divided heart. Next couple that I want you to see, David's confronting a bitter heart. Look with me at verses four and five. David says, be angry. Well, he says other things, but let's tackle that for a second. Be angry. Some of you are going, finally, something in this sermon that I can actually say, I have got that handled. Okay. Be angry. Well, what does this mean? What is David actually addressing here? David's not addressing necessarily the instinct to grow angry at a slight. David's addressing brooding simmering, seething. There's a couple ways that you could talk about what David is saying. The first one is to say, David's addressing us when we're nursing our wound. We're nursing our wound. What What do we do when we nurse our wound? So how many of you have done this? You've won the argument when you've re-had the argument in your head. Anybody? Oh, I know what I should have said, right? You brood on it. Over and over and over, you replay the wound. You allow it to keep breathing. That's one way that we can... Um, that David's talking about um, when he says what he's confronting when he says, "Be angry and don't sin." Right? We're sinning when we're nursing the wound, when we're just keeping. The second thing that you have to watch out for is not only nursing the wound, but also nursing the wind. When you say, "This is how I'm going to get even," this is how I'm going to be passive aggressive the wind, at the end of the day, you are still allowing anger to control you, not as a godly response, but as a way for you to have power over someone else. And why do we do that? Why do we feel like we, have, we can be in a position uh, where I can be truly angry at someone and continue to nurse that wound or replay how I would get it done and be right because here's the thing we're self-righteous and i'm saying a lot of obvious things but just go with me on this we're self-righteous because we end up saying that oh here's the reason that i'm i'm justified in being as angry as i am cuz i would never do something like that that sinner See, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talked about logs and specks, he said, make sure you take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of somebody else's eye. If you're mad about someone else's speck, okay, that's fine. Be angry about it. Because when you get angry, and the bitterness inside of you swells and festers and begins to... If we don't deal with our underlying idolatry, it grows. It it's going to cause us to go into deeper and deeper despair, right? And there's plenty of things to be angry about in the world. You'll see this theme over and over and over again in the Psalms. There's plenty of injustice in the world. There's plenty of things to look at and go, that is not right. But when your anger becomes your identity, it's shifted into idolatry. When you're the one who's always righteously angry and never the one being humbled by your own sin, and it may be killing you on the inside. So what counsel does, it, does David offer here? First of all, <clears throat> David does not chide you for being angry. He doesn't chide you for being angry. The fact that you're angry is not the problem. It's what you do with the anger. It's like what I tell couples in premarital counseling and even some in marriage counseling too. The fact that you're having conflict is not a problem in your relationship. If both of you come into my office and tell me neither one of us have any conflict ever, one of you is either lying or dead. The fact that you have conflict is not the problem. It is what you do with it that determines whether it is a problem or not. Likewise, the fact that you grow angry at injustice is not the problem. It is what you do with that anger that becomes the issue. So look, acknowledge the pain. Ponder in your own hearts, David says in verse 4. Ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. Go and bring your pain before the Lord. Come and open up your heart to him. But don't nurse the wound. Don't nurse the wind. Don't hold on to anger because it makes you feel powerful. Don't hold on to anger because it makes you feel self-righteous. Now, instead, go and bring your anger and ponder in your heart. Is there something that I can repent of? Is this a mistake that I have made before? Did Jesus see me on my most pious days and die for my sins on those days? David says that we are to, verse 5, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. It is believing that God is at work in the world. And I know this surprises some of you. He does not need you to be the junior Holy Spirit. And there are times that will come that he will address injustice in the here and now, and there are times that will yet still come when he will address injustice in the world that is to come. And the thing about it is, is we have to remember, we all, we all deserved... Instead of nursing our anger, search our hearts. Remember our own flaws and then trust in the Lord. Trust that he knows best, not just for you, but for the other person as well. Okay? So first of all, David said he's going to address the divided heart, right? He's going to address the heart of the one who is seeking after lies, who's taking their refuge in something but can't ultimately hear them or satisfy him. The next thing that David addresses is the bitter heart. It's the person who's nursing wounds and nursing wins because anger makes them feel something when it's actually crushing them. Here's the third thing. David wants to address the ungrateful heart. Now, this one's a hard one. But I want you to hear this. Look at verse 6. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Now, who is the one that is saying, who will show us some good? David tells you who's saying this. These are the ones whose grain and wine are full. They have been given much, and yet they still feel as if they are owed more. So rather than count their blessings one by one, these are the people who say that nothing is going their way for them. What they want is a life of comfort and prosperity and ease, and that does not appear to be happening for them. You see, our hearts grow bitter when our desires for the good life, what we think life is supposed to mean, what, our if only, what we've set our if only as, right? You can, you can tell a lot about what your definition of the good life is based on what you have set your if only as. When your definition of the good life, what that is supposed to mean, doesn't line up with what God says the good life is. In his book on the Psalms, Eugene Peterson says this. He says, this contrast is between those who are perpetually asking God for what they do not have, verse 6, and those who are overwhelmed before God with what he has already given them, verse 7. David states what we already have in the second part of verse 6. We have the light of God's face upon us. And because of that, we have greater joy, greater greater delight in us than anyone else. We can have greater delight in poverty than someone else could have who has riches. In fact, in God's grace and goodness, uh, there was a sermon that um, Jonathan Edwards preached, he pulled from three different texts of Scripture, and he said um, basically that um, our bad things are being worked out for good, our good things can't be taken from us, and the best things are still yet to come. How are you doing with that? Our bad things are being worked for good, our good things. If, if you're finding in your prayers that there is deep struggle to rest in the Lord, if there is great angst in your heart, that doesn't mean, beloved, that rest is not for you. What it might mean is that before rest can come, wrestling must happen. Remember what Steve said at the beginning of worship? In order for something to be a refuge, you actually have to run to it. It may require you to change. If there is angst in your heart, if there is disquiet in your heart, if there is no peace in your heart, it does not mean that rest is not for you. It may mean that wrestling must happen first before rest will come. So when we're praying these prayers and we find ourselves increasingly growing sad or angry or full of self-pity, it is possible that we are doing more listening to our own hearts than speaking to our hearts. But some of you I know are, are skeptical You struggle to be at peace, and you struggle to believe that because God is your father, because he has drawn near to you, because he is. So there's one other thing, it's the last thing I want you to see about this psalm. I want to take you back to how David began it. He said, in verse 1, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness here's the way that you can demand an audience with God. Who is it, friends, listen, who is it that would have the sheer audacity to demand an audience with God, to call to the God of the universe, the framer and the maker of all things with such bold confidence, especially knowing the character and the quality of the one who is calling out? Listen, listen, Jesus is the righteous one who received the prayer rejection from God that we deserved so that we would get the prayer reception from God that Jesus deserved. When Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was silence. The prayer rejection that Jesus got was so that the prayer reception that he deserved, you and I would get. That when we call, God would hear us. He would incline his ear and everything would stop because his beloved is speaking to him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So beloved, we can know for certain that God will answer us when we call to my God because God did not answer Jesus when he made the same petition on the cross. Now, now, Now the righteousness of God guarantees that he will answer us. God must hear us or he would be unjust because our sins are paid for. Without Christ, God's righteousness would guarantee that he would not hear us. But with Christ, God's righteousness guarantees that he will. But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard because we want rest to come easily and quickly. We want idolatry to vanish. And you think to yourself, if God really loved me, he'd just take all of it away. The reason that Edwards could preach a sermon that said your bad things are being worked for good, your good things can't be taken away, and the best things are yet to come, is because of what Jesus did on the cross and because of the fact that he's coming again. And when he does, all sad things are made untrue. This life that we live, this this time that we exist in, is but a moment in the economy of eternity. And because of Jesus, we can know ultimately what David felt in part. Because in Jesus, I will, verse 8, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. So as we petition God, as we bring our our fears and our needs, our cries for justice and guidance to the place where they can be attended to and we can find rest, we pray with boldness and confidence and yet also submission to God's holy will. We can be bold because we know that we're God's children and we can submit because we know that God is good and does what is good. And friends, because of this, we can also speak truth to our own hearts and and we know that we won't be undone. We won't die because we lose our idols. We let go of our anger or we see our self-pity to go away. So dear ones, where do you need to wrestle with God? Where do you need to wrestle with your own heart? Is there an if only that's there? that God keeps saying no to and you keep saying, God, why don't you love me and answer my prayers? Maybe his no is actually because he does love you. Is it possible um, that you're angry, that you're resentful? You look back at the choices you've made and the conversations you had and the things you wish you could have said and, and everything else. A realization that You've been given the king. The psalm invites us not into a one-and-done rhythm of life, but a pattern of wrestle to rest. We have an audience with the king. We dwell secure.